y'all. This is Leah Van, your Iowa Hawkeye beat writer for the Gazette. I am coming at y'all with a brand new microphone and I am not completely sure how to use it. So hopefully the audio is okay. Uh, (laughs) So I had two conversations on this podcast and it ran a little bit longer than I expected, to be honest. I really want to keep my podcast to be an hour or less for y'all, but I just had some very verbose people on the podcast. What can I say? Uh, The first guest you're going to hear from is Zach Osterman from the Indianapolis Star. He tells us a little bit more about this Indiana team, and he's great. He's very detailed. He has covered this team for a long time. I think y'all will really enjoy it and that you should always know the enemy better than you know yourself. So I hope that helps you out. And then I talk with my coworker, Mike Haloss, about what he's written about this week and kind of what to expect out of Saturday. Um, I asked him for some advice as a new beat writer and he doesn't really have a lot of advice for me. So that's fine. We're going to, we're going to roll with it. Um, I will get around to answering some of these Twitter questions I got. I answered a couple with Mike, but some of these were more catered towards me. So I'm just going to answer two of them and then I'll take y'all to the interviews that I did. Um, the first one is what do you typically keep an eye out for as a fan of the game and as a beat writer, or is it the same? I think that's a really interesting question. Um, I, I want to say it's the same, right? Because as a beat writer, my job is to tell y'all what you want to know, or maybe tell y'all something that you don't know. Right. And the goal of journalism is to enlighten. And so we're trying to give you information that you would not otherwise have access to. So some of the things that I'm going to be paying attention to this Saturday are personnel, right? I think we're all trying to figure out who's going to be rotating on that offensive line, who's going to be rotating on that defensive line. And none of the coaches were clear about who's starting, by the way. Um, Textbook Iowa, we don't know anything. So I think that's going to be something that I'm paying attention to. I'm also curious to know where this passing game is out. Like is Spencer Petrus truly how far has he come from last season? And then how often is he going to use these wide receivers? Right. I mean, there's a lot of preseason hype around Keegan Johnson, a lot of preseason hype around Tyrone Tracy jr. I'm curious how much is he going to use them? And then you've got a new tight end number one and Sam Laporta, I know that Sam, you've kind of seen him here and there. We have not seen as much Luke Lachey. So um, I'm excited to see how that turns out. I'm curious to know how that turns out. Um, But yeah, you know, if I look at it from a reader's perspective, that is what's going to help me the most. Um, For example, as a Texas fan, I obviously wanted to know who the starting quarterback was this offseason. I wanted to know who was back, you know, how much depth um, Texas has in the defense and the offense. So, yeah, I think this first game personnel, that's going to be a huge thing. And are they living up to what they said has improved this offseason? And certainly this will be a true test of that because you're actually playing a conference opponent as opposed to a non-conference opponent where you can't really you're not going to really evaluate a lot against like a Colorado state or a Kent state. Now that's not a knock on them. That's not their fault, but it's true. Right. I mean, I've watched a lot of non-conference games as a Texas fan against like a San Jose state or a UTL Paso and thought, wow, we're going to the national championship. Look how good we are. And then the next week we're playing a conference opponent. I'm like, just kidding. Right. 
Um, I have one more question from Twitter that I need to address. If I can just flip on my phone, man, technology is not my friend today. So the question was what part of your pregame routine is set in stone and what parts are going to be trial and error this season, like a coffee stop before the game or the Casey's breakfast pizza. Okay. First off y'all I've been to Casey's. I worked in Iowa in 2017 to 2018. Don't forget it. North Iowa, shout out Mason City Globe Gazette. Yes, that is this. I'm at my currently second Gazette in Iowa. You don't know how confusing that is for all of my Texas fans. Uh, not Texas fans, but my Texas friends. They're not my fans. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, okay. I've had the Casey's breakfast pizza and I've had the Casey's quote unquote taco pizza. By the way, y'all, Doritos and ground beef is not a taco. Please get that in your head. That is not a taco. Now that's fine. If the taco pizza, it's great. I liked it. Honestly, it's good. You got to put a lot of that spicy sauce on it, but you know, it's good. It's, it's different. It's weird, but it's kind of like you'll have that. And then you have the walking taco and both have ground beef and Doritos. And it's like, if that's your impression of a taco, please go get a real taco. Go to La Regia in Iowa City. Go to El Sol in Solon. Like there are true tacos and true tacos, like street tacos. You should have corn tortilla, your meat, your cilantro, and your onion. And then you put a little bit of your hot sauce on there. That is a taco. All right. Get cultured. We got this. Um, yeah. So I digress y'all. Um, I'm probably going to make my own coffee. It's going to be black coffee as always on brand. I ordered some Texas pecan coffee online because I can't find it here. Um, if you want to get in that fall mood, Texas pecan coffee, I highly recommend it. You can order it from anywhere. Any brand will really suit your fancy if you like pecans and coffee. So That'll probably be my pregame coffee. I don't trust the ability for me to navigate traffic, although I am a speeding ticket kind of person and can get around people. Um, it's probably safer for everybody if I don't drive to a coffee shop on the way to this football game. Now, as far as my breakfast, I've actually been having some tummy problems lately, so I'm probably not going to have a Casey's breakfast pizza. It's probably going to be oatmeal and berries, something super boring. Um, you know, I do have a Texas waffle iron maker, so it's in the shape of Texas. Yes, I am very on brand and true to where I'm from. So I feel like normally on game day, I love to make myself a waffle or make myself some pancakes, but that will not be the case this Saturday. I hope that it does become regular routine when um, the season gets rolling and my stomach stops hurting. So of course my stomach is hurting the first week of game day, right? I mean, just my luck. All right, y'all. Well, I had a lot of fun making this podcast. I hope that y'all enjoy it. And uh, we're going to start things off with Zach Osterman from the Indianapolis Star. So here we go. Welcome back to Hawk Off the Press. I am your Iowa beat writer here at the Gazette. And today I am joined by Zach Osterman with the Indianapolis Star. Zach, how are you doing today? Hey, how are we doing? Thanks for having me. 
Yeah, sure thing. So tell me a little bit, um, were you born and raised in Indiana? How'd you get to where you are? No, actually, I, I was born and raised um, in Georgia. I, I grew up in Atlanta and just came to Indiana for college, uh, met a girl, got a job, wound up just kind of settling in in Bloomington. It's, it's not a bad place to spend some time. So the winters still uh, <laughs> kind of get under my skin a little bit. But uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm a transplanted Southerner. Gotcha. And so how long have you been covering Indiana football? I mean, in, in some form, probably going all the way back to, you know, my time on the student paper sports desk, you know, kind of 2008, 2009 in, in this job specifically, I, when I was actually brought on, um, we had football and basketball separated into two different beats. And um, I, uh, only did basketball then and then picked up football, I guess it probably was 2015. So, um, and, and I'd covered football for, I covered IU football in my previous job for a, a magazine called Inside Indiana, which was partnered with 24-7 Sports and I really more ran the digital arm, the, the, the website. And so I covered IU football there for three or four years and then came to the star and kind of put it down for a while and picked it back up and I've been been with IU football specifically ever since. So, so you've covered, uh, a lot of, you've covered a lot of Indiana football and it certainly has been more exciting for Indiana, especially in the past year or so. Um, is this like the best team that you've covered so far for that, for Indiana? Probably is. I mean, pound for pound, um, you know, Indiana obviously was very good last year and, and, you know, results kind of reflected that. I think, you know, if, if they're, we'll see where this year goes. Indiana's got, you know, some key pieces to replace, but it's also a lot more experienced than it was a year ago. And I think it's, it's kind of, you know, kind of, I think you can see in this roster sort of a, uh, this is one of those sort of cliches that it's hard to avoid, but sort of a habit of winning now. You know, I mean, this this team's been to two bowl games and, or bowl games in the last two seasons, you know, four in the last six. There are a few, even a few guys on this roster that can remember the the Foster Farms Bowl in 2016, and so um, not that Indiana thinks it's Ohio State or anything like that, but you know that paired to the obvious sort of upgrades in talent that Indiana has been able to manage in the last few years, um, there's also been a really distinct sort of basically just I think guys gaining the confidence of winning, you know, and and seeing it and doing it, uh, you know, kind of on repeat, you know, going eight and five one year, picking up a lot of big wins, close wins at Nebraska, at Maryland, at Purdue. And then following that with obviously a season with, you know, probably even more prominent results, you'd say Penn State, Michigan, Michigan State, Wisconsin. Um, you know, I, I don't think this team takes too much for granted in terms of thinking it's it's somehow the class of the Big Ten or anything like that. But I think there is, you know, just a little bit more of kind of a confidence in, hey, this is the process and, and we know it works and, you know, we um, we know how to get the results we want. And so I think there's there's kind of the, the, the tangible talent and the intangible talent probably make this, yeah, the best IU team I've ever covered. Yeah, well, let's get right down to it. I know a lot of our Hawkeye fans are curious to see what they're going to see on Saturday when it comes to this game. And the talk of yesterday's like media day for us on our end was 
um, this team's tendency to turn the ball over on defense. Um, what makes this Indiana defense so special and able to lead the Big Ten in these turnovers? I mean, that's always been by design within Indiana's defense, and, and not that there's a defense out there that that isn't designed to turn the ball over, obviously. Um, but even going back to you know, Tom Allen's one season as defensive coordinator at Indiana, um, you know, all, all we heard about from him for the first, I don't know, six months or whatever after he came in from South Florida was my defense is built to turn the ball over. And and it's not a defense that I think there's kind of this this term that gets is a little bit outdated now, you know, sort of bend, don't break. I think it's really much more a modern defense in the sense that it recognizes that where college football is, in 2021, you know, schemes, offensive sort of development, rules, changes, things like that. Most defenses can't reasonably say, well, we're only going to allow 260 yards and 10 points and we're going to smother everybody every week. It's it's just too much of a wide open game for that. This is a defense kind of built to accommodate that. And in some ways, if it works to exploit it, you know, to bring some really creative blitzes to confuse offensive lines that may not have a lot of help from tight ends or backs, uh, you know, in, in picking up those blitzes, but can still be stout enough up the middle to, you know, play against a, a, an Iowa or, you know, last season, I think they only allowed Michigan 13 rushing yards the entire game, you know, obviously only allowed six points at Wisconsin. Um, so they can still play that style of game if they, you know, if they need to. They can also be a defense that if even if they get spread out and sped up, um, they can kind of they're really good at just making havoc plays, tackles for loss, quarterback pressures. And when you couple that to I think how versatile this defense is in terms of, you know, there's a lot of flex positions within it. The Husky that's very much kind of a safety linebacker hybrid. There's a, a bull position, which is kind of a linebacker defensive end hybrid. Um, you know, they'll drop some of their best corners down into blitzes into blitz packages. I mean, Taiwan Mullen, I think at three and a half, four and a half sacks last year, and he was an All-American cornerback. Um, it, it is a defense designed to confuse and disrupt. And, you know, that that may look like what they did, for example, at Ohio State. I think Ohio State last year was a, a really good example. I think they allowed 607 total yards of offense and 42 points. They also sacked Justin Fields three or four times. They turned, they, they intercepted him three times. He only had three career interceptions coming into that game. And they intercepted him three times that afternoon. He was only 15 of 30 passing the ball. And Ohio State only scored one touchdown in the second half. And obviously, Indiana nearly came back and tied it in the fourth quarter. And so that's kind of, you know, obviously, Indiana statistically wants to be better than that. But that's kind of the paradigm of the defense is they're not going to be afraid to – they're not going to be sort of broken confidence-wise by giving up yards because they are going to just come at you with a lot of wrinkles and – you know, creative fronts, creative blitzes, creative personnel packages that are just really designed to confuse um, and then to capitalize off that confusion. And, and if you look at, you know, I mean, they were fifth in the conference in 2016 in turnovers gained. They, they took a weird step back in 2017, but they were tied for second in the conference in 2018. As you said, they were first in the conference last season um in in turnovers gained it's it's a defense that has been pretty consistent in things like creating turnovers you know forcing sacks tackles for loss and just generally making offenses uncomfortable and and so when you kind of pair that to again maybe a little bit of what we saw last year in the ability to 
play some of those lower possession, lower scoring games and still really kind of win those battles as well. I think that's probably where that this defense evolved in 2020 was not just being able to win a, a game where things were kind of all, you know, all over the place and you're, you know, picking teams off in the end zone and looking for those change plays, but also win the games where it's, it's a lot more about kind of clock management, running the ball, uh, power football, and, and still being able to win the game that way as well. Yeah. You touched on, you kind of touched on the Husky versus the bull positions a little bit. Um, I'm wondering in what situations um, Indiana does use the different positions and if the defensive coordinator, the new one, Charlton Warren, if he's changed things up a little bit as far as like adding the bull position. And um, yeah, if you could elaborate on like what, what like defensive front you'll see against maybe Iowa more often. Yeah. I mean, it it is still a four man front um, in sort of its, its base. And obviously it's, it's hard to say what the differences will be yet between Kane Womack, who was defense coordinator last year and is now at South Alabama and Charlton Warren, who Indiana pulled away from Georgia. But I think number one, some of the fundamentals are always going to remain in the sense that it's, it's Tom Allen's defense, you know, and, and in the same way that, you know, when you think about Ohio State, and this is no disrespect to Kevin Wilson, who of course was the, the head coach at IU, that's Ryan Day's offense at Ohio State. And, and Kevin Wilson is, is taking the structures and the concepts and, and building within it as offense coordinator. This is Tom Allen's defense at Indiana. And his coordinator calls plays, his coordinator, you know, game plans. But he's doing that within the within the structure, within the concept of what Allen wants. And so I think there's some fundamental things that will never change. But it's also a defense that's built to be flexible. So when you talk like about the bull position as an example, and this is, you know, it's 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 not revolutionary or anything like that. It's more just Indiana kind of believing it has the athletic ability at that defensive end spot to, to do this now. Um, more of what you see at kind of higher end college programs and certainly in the NFL defensive ends that basically can, you know, can can go down in a three point stance. Uh, but can also stand up at the end of the line, can play heavy against the run, but can also drop back into pass coverage. You know, if you go back film-wise, again, the Ohio State game is, is probably the best example. Indiana had a lot of success basically dropping its ends into coverage, and I think at least once a tackle into coverage, but sending just a ton of blitz pressure straight up the middle, kind of overwhelming Ohio State's interior line, getting in Justin Fields' face, having a big body out in the flat to take away a safety valve and then forcing him to go through progressions, which took time and allowed pressure to, to kind of hit home. And so it's, it's, you know, the, the bull position, probably if, if you charted every single snap in an IU in let's say Saturday's game, uh, I I'm guessing a lot of the time it would do fairly conventional defensive end type things. It's more just that the thread is there of every once in a while, you're not going to realize it. And that guy is up in a two-point stance, but instead of rushing, he drops. Or maybe he takes one rush step and then he drops and a safety replaces him or, or something like that. And it's basically just, again, kind of about confusing and, and almost forcing, you know, forcing teams to have to prepare for more than is, is normal, more than they're comfortable with, being more versatile. I think coaches like to use the word multiple. That seems to be sort of the the – the phrase that they love in modern football, um, then your average college defense, certainly your average college defense outside of the, 
you know, the, the Alabamas, the Georgias, the Ohio States, the Clemsons, the ones that can call on that elite level of talent um, on kind of an annual basis. And I think what's, what's interesting and what, you know, we can't really answer yet because we haven't seen it. I think what's interesting about pulling Charlton Warren in from Georgia is when, when Tom Allen hired Kane Womack from, he hired him from South Alabama where he was defensive coordinator. That was very much kind of a hire of, you know, Allen learned the four two five from Kane Womack's dad, Dave Womack, who was a longtime coordinator in the SEC in the Southeast. You know, Kane had coached under Tom at different spots, and I think Ole Miss primarily. They knew each other well, and it was kind of like two two minds that thought alike. You know, um, conceptually and schematically. Now, it's interesting to me that you're kind of reaching for somebody that is coming from a defense that probably can be a lot more creative and a lot more kind of innovative because it's calling on such a, uh, just such a substantial, you know, talent base and, and skills base at Georgia, you know, Kirby smart assistants and Kirby, you know, kind of, if you want to call it his coaching tree, have a decent sort of track record of, of having success elsewhere, whether it be his coordinators or, or his head coaches. I think, I think Kirby's already got, three or four head coaches in the FBS kind of that, that have worked directly under him. And so I think it's interesting that Indiana, you know, pulled Charlton Warren. I know they were really impressed with his Air Force background, his, his you know, military academy background as well. But I think it's also interesting they pulled somebody that maybe he was coming from a place where they probably were willing to try and tinker and, and be a little bit more innovative because they trusted they had the talent to do it. I, I'm not, again, not saying Indiana's got Georgia's talent on its roster, but maybe Indiana feels like that gap's a little bit closer and they want somebody who is going to be able to see the game, you know, through those eyes essentially and, and just, you know, almost kind of introduce some of those more advanced concepts to a defense that's that's already because a lot of these guys are talented, but they've also played a lot and they've played a lot together. A lot of them played young and and stayed in that rotation for the last two, three, four years. I think a defense is probably advanced enough to handle some of that stuff. Yeah, certainly. I remember I, I did a story on uh, comparing like the number of graduate transfers uh, across some of the Big Ten schools. I noticed that Indiana uses a lot of transfers on its roster, also tends to recruit from around the country. I know Tom Allen talked about taking those kids from the South, which is certainly not something that Iowa does. Um Speaking of grad transfers, I saw that there's a starting running back on your depth chart from USC, which I was familiar with. They played in 2019 Holiday Bowl. Um, I know that Indiana uses the air raid offense. Um, what is the game plan with this new running back? And does he add any, like, what does he add to this roster? Well, he's looked good in, in preseason camp. Obviously, that's the most we've been able to to kind of see of him at this point. But when 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 we have been able to view practice sessions and things like that, he's you know he's he's flashed in terms of kind of breaking plays open and things like that. Um, I, I suspect he's going to be very different to Indiana starting running back the last two or three years, Stevie Scott, who is kind of drifting. I think he's been in a couple different NFL camps already. Um, you know, Scott was just, I mean, he was a big, strong back, 6'2", 230. Um, basically, from the day he walked on campus, he had a Big Ten ready body. And, you know, he was very much uh, more kind of power than explosiveness. I think Carr may be a little bit more explosive this than power. Although, again, I don't want to draw too many conclusions until we can see him more in the offense. I think 
the other thing too is number one, Indiana will rotate its backs pretty consistently. I, I still expect to see a decent amount of Tim Baldwin. Uh, if and when he's healthy, I think we'll see a fair bit of David Ellis, maybe even David Holloman, who's a freshman. Um, the other thing I would say is, and, and I've said this for a year or more now, and uh, not that I think Indiana staff listens to everything I say or reads everything I write, but I feel like I might have been pulled up on it by now if I was absolutely <laughs> wrong. Tom Allen's been Indiana's head coach for this will be his fifth season. And for the last four years, I've heard him talk about wanting to improve his running game. And each of those four years, Indiana has been one of the top passing teams in the Big Ten. From an attempts, yards, you know, completions perspective, Indiana has, has found its way to passing the ball a lot more than it runs the ball. And um, that includes, frankly, particularly in the in sort of the non-COVID years when you felt like you were getting a, a fuller, more rounded look at Indiana's, you know, kind of playbook, for lack of a, a, a more artful term. Um, that include that included a lot of the time, lots of screens, lots of swings, you know, lots of lots of basically just sort of get the ball quickly to the perimeter in, a, in an athlete's hands and let him make a play. You know, Watt failure being a great example of that. Um, David Ellis being an example of that. You know, I think uh, Michael Penix in, in 2019 set a program record. He completed, I want to say it was 20 straight passes in a game at Michigan State, and we went back and chartered them afterward, and something like 12 of them were completed behind the line of scrimmage. So the point is it, it um, it's an offense where maybe the run game is a little bit the short pass game, and, and the run game is a little bit really the kind of the perimeter screen game, and sometimes that'll involve the running back. Sometimes it won't. Sometimes it'll involve a receiver. Sometimes it'll even involve a tight end. But when you kind of look at when you when you rewind even further and look at some of the offenses that Hugh Freeze ran, some of the offenses that Tom Allen obviously will have seen when he was coming up as an assistant under Freeze at Arkansas State and Ole Miss, I just suspect that's kind of what he conceptually has in mind offensively. I don't think he's a head coach that is looking for an offense that runs for 275 yards a game and you know, very much run to set up the pass in, in whatever structure, you know, Indiana used to be under Kevin Wilson, you know, high tempo, spread option, spread offense, whatever, but they still ran the ball a lot and they still ran the ball to set up play action, vertical shots over the top. This offense just isn't kind of built that way. And so um, I think Stephen Carr could be a real impact guy. I know the staff is very, very high on him, you know, and they feel like his athletic level is, is something that, you know, they maybe haven't had in that running back room consistently since they've been at IU. That said, I also would be surprised if he's an 1,800-yard back this year, um, simply because I'm not sure IU's offense is designed that way. If, if he's, you know, if he's ripping off 12-yard gains against Iowa on Saturday, they'll keep giving him the ball. I'm not saying they won't, but um, I think this is an offense that's also built to kind of gain short and medium yardage through more than just the ground game. And he'll probably be a part of that, you know, and I think you'll probably see more of him than the average getting out in space, catching the ball, you know, making plays that way. Um, but I just, I, I don't know how much, like, even out of the spread, how much sort of between the tackles running this offense is, is really attempting to do. Michael Penix has been noted to be in full form totally healthy after last season. Is that what you saw out of, you know, the scrimmage time that you were able to maybe see as a reporter? Uh, what have people said about his recovery at quarterback? I mean, he's hit every target. And again, you know, it's not like we have been 
privy to all of it, uh, mm-hmm. of course, but he's hit every target that Indiana's laid out for him since his injury in terms of when he's been able to start working out again, when we've seen him throwing again, you know, even going back to the spring, certainly, you know, even the stuff that we would, we wouldn't attend like player workouts in the summer and stuff like that. When videos have come out of that, he's looked fine. He doesn't seem like he's ever really been limited in camp. You know, that they still did hold him out of kind of full team scrimmage situations in camp. Um, not that it would have mattered from a contact perspective anyway, Indiana, like a lot of schools doesn't hit QBs in, in fall camp, but um, we still saw him throw a lot. We still saw him throw in, in live situations and those sorts of things. And he looked fine. You know, I guess the, the one big thing other than basically just, you know, Indiana keeping him upright and keeping him healthy against, and I've said this when people have asked me this week is against a defense where you, you can kind of count on what Iowa is going to be physically in its front, you know, it's front four. And you also know, Iowa's got, if I'm not mistaken, its entire starting secondary back. Yep. You know, how is there rust there for Michael Penix? And if there is, how quickly can he knock it off? Mm-hmm. Because uh, I think, you know, I, I I wouldn't expect this game to be, you know, I, I wouldn't expect this to be a game where both sides broke 40 points anyway. You know, if, if in the off chance it was, I guess I'd be surprised if Indiana didn't win it at that point. But uh, I do think it's it's a game where Indiana's got to be Indiana's got to regain some efficiency, if not maybe some explosiveness offensively. Indiana could be very explosive in 2020, but not nearly as efficient of an offense as it was in 2019. And I think getting that efficiency piece back is about getting Penix back into his comfort zone, back into his rhythm. And obviously, you you could have picked easier opponents to do that against. And so I think that that's maybe one of the big questions for him is just against a, a good defense and in particular defense, that at least on paper should be able to really challenge him specifically passing the ball. Um, how quickly does he kind of knock that rust off and, and get kind of his own comfort level back? Yeah. I'm curious from your perspective, what were the team's main concerns with Iowa for on our side? It was, you know, obviously the turnovers and obviously the big productive offense. So what were you hearing the players and coaches saying at your uh, media availability this week? I mean, I I think it's, and nobody put it exactly this way, but I think the, you know, the, the sort of undercurrent message is, you know what you get with Iowa, but if it were, if it were so simple, then it wouldn't be so successful. Um, You know, you you know, the ways they're going to challenge you, you know what they're going to try and do. But if, you know, if it were as easy as just beating all that, then it wouldn't work. And it does. I think there's a healthy respect, you know, for the personnel Iowa has, the, you know, their strength on both lines, obviously running back, obviously quarterback, again, experience on defense. I think there's also just, you know, Indiana, as Indiana spent really about the last 10 years trying to build its football program really from the ground up, frankly, from where it was. Um, you know, I, I think there's always been a healthy respect for places like Iowa and Northwestern where not necessarily, cause obviously different schools will do it differently, but more kind of the idea that you build, you know, this infrastructure and this identity that allows you to just kind of be really consistent and, and, and so consistent that you say when there's a hole in the staff, 
you know exactly what kind of coach you want to hire. When there's a hole in the a recruiting class, you know exactly what kind of player you're looking for. Um, and that consistency, you know, that 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 steadiness basically just allows, you know, breeds success and puts Indiana where I think Indiana feels like it's entering right now and 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 could kind of soon feel a little bit more permanently located right in kind of the middle class of the Big Ten where you know most years you're looking at eight and four somewhere between seven and nine wins most seasons and then you know that there are probably more seasons where you're challenging at the top end of your division than there are seasons where you're not going balling at all and I think Indiana's always held a real um, a real respect as a program for just the consistency that, that Iowa puts together that you can always kind of count on whatever the personnel are, or whatever the schedule is, Iowa to find a way to be, you know, one of the tougher teams in the conference, um, both physically and, and also just kind of from the perspective of it's not very easy to win at Iowa. It's not very easy to beat Iowa. If you beat Iowa, you're probably going to have earned it. And I think that that's, you know, for a, a team that has obviously had success against a lot of other programs that probably kind of held their thumb on the scale over Indiana a little bit in the last few years. You know, Iowa is Indiana hasn't beaten Iowa in eight years, I think. Um, and the last time they beat them, I don't think either team ended up in a bowl game that season. So that kind of gives you a, mm-hmm. a sense of where that matchup was. Um, you know, I, I don't, I don't think Indiana is going to have trouble basically just sort of respecting how difficult of a, a challenge this is going to be. And there's, there's also been a lot of mention this week of, you know, kind of a nod of respect to it's going to be the first game back with fans at Kinnick. And, you know, there's going to be guys on Indiana's roster that have never played in front of a college crowd. And, you know, certainly I don't think there's anybody on Indiana's roster that's ever played at Kinnick because I think the last time they were there was 2014. So there's also kind of been a, a healthy respect for, hey, we, you know, we need to be ready for that kind of environment as well because it's going to be big kind of everywhere everybody goes for these first couple of weeks, fans are finally back in sta- stadiums and everybody's excited and so forth. Um, but Indiana drew a tougher than normal assignment having to start here with Iowa in week one. How is Indiana feeling about starting off this season with a conference opponent? I, I mean, I think, I certainly think that it, I think this is the right roster to do it in, in what I mean by that is it's, it's experienced it's had success. Um, it's learned how to manage success. You know, I think one of the big questions that uh, just I sort of asked watching Indiana last season was, would they be able to maintain their focus and, and their intensity when all of a sudden they kind of weren't, you know, they weren't Cinderella anymore. They weren't a, they weren't the feel good story. They weren't the fairy tale. It was sort of like all of a sudden Indiana's top 10, Indiana's pushing top five, Indiana's beating Michigan, Indiana's beating Penn State. Were they still going to be able to, was there ever going to be a moment where that caught up with them a little bit? And there really wasn't, not for any sustained period. You know, they beat Penn State and then they went on the road and won by double digits at Rutgers. They beat Michigan and then they went on the road and, and shut out Michigan State. Um, you know, there were all sorts of kind of moments when Indiana, maybe if it, was, if it wasn't mentally strong enough for the success it was having, could have stumbled last year and didn't. And so I think that from that perspective, this roster is, is built for that. And also maybe at some level, too, just kind of the, um, at the same time, the healthy sort of respect you have to have for starting with a conference opponent on the road. You know, I, I think Tom Allen's first game as head coach, Indiana hosted Ohio State 
in a season opener on Thursday night and <laughs> you know Indiana kind of blew the blew the doors off of it you know there was a um you know they, they build it as like the biggest season opener in program history and ESPN game day crew was in town and all those different <laughs> kinds of things and, and Indiana played well for a while and then faded because Ohio State was a much better team but you also sort of felt like not that the moment was maybe too big for Indiana, but that Indiana didn't properly know how to embrace the moment. And, and that maybe there were moments in the game itself where Indiana kind of got, you know, kind of maybe experienced a little bit of a power surge, you know, a little bit of a rush of blood to the head from it. I don't think this team will have that. And I think that there's a delicate balance you strike when you play a game like this right off the gate, right out of the gate that between wanting to be really sharp and wanting to be, you know, really up for a game like this, but not wanting to kind of be basically let it, let it overload your, your circuitry. And I don't think this team will do that. Now I could be wrong, obviously. Um, and I also would say too, I think Iowa, as much as any program in the big 10 kind of has the capacity to, you think you know what they are and then they sneak up on you and it turns out they're an 11 win team one year. You know, we all thought maybe eight wins and then, things have just slid into place and, and Iowa, you know, wins the West. So that could happen as well too. Kirk Ferentz kind of has that, that quality about him. But I think that this team is, this is the right kind of team Indiana would want to take into this game because I think they'll be mentally ready for it without, you know, sort of overestimating Iowa, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, my, I have two more questions for you. And the first one being like, Obviously, there's a lot of returners on this roster. Um, what are the weaknesses, do you think, in your own words, of this Indiana team that you maybe know of right now? Well, I think, first of all, Indiana's offensive line did not have a great 2020, and I don't know how many offensive lines did. I know it was a tough year for that position group in particular for a variety of reasons. You know, Indiana, Indiana's own COVID protocols basically prevented them from most of the offseason in 2020 from working out their entire offensive line together um, because they were breaking, they were breaking position groups up. So you didn't wind up in a situation where an entire position group tested positive or got caught in contact tracing. And suddenly you just didn't have any offensive linemen for practices. Um, I think it was also a tough year because you just, you had to change your preparation in fear of losing guys, you know, at the, at the last, the last hour before a game to positive tests I know, you know, there have been IU offensive linemen, and I suspect that there may be offensive linemen that would say the same elsewhere who admitted they were playing, you know, way off their healthy playing weight below or, or probably more often above because they were trying so hard to keep the weight on, but because suddenly your access to your weight room and your strength staff and those resources is more limited, you find yourself keeping that weight on in, in less healthy ways, and then all of a sudden you're not playing at a good weight or you're not playing with good weight, you're playing, you're carrying bad weight. Um, I would be surprised if that unit doesn't improve this year. I think the question is how much and and whether it's basically just improving in the sense of maybe getting some normalcy back post COVID protocols, or if it's getting that plus, you know, some substantial steps forward as guys get back into shape, as guys maybe, maybe kind of come back and challenge themselves. You know, this is only Indiana's second year under Nick Sheridan, its offensive coordinator. Um, but that is a group that needs to get better skills wise offensively. Indiana's got a couple really good headliners. Ty Freifogel is one. Um, but I think that, you know, you, you, and I think that there are a lot of candidates for sort of players that can really join him. Miles Marshall, 
DJ Matthews, the Florida State transfer, Jacoby Hewitt. Um, you know, Peyton Hendershot was set a bunch of single season records for a tight end in 2019 at Indiana and then was very quiet in 2020, just did not have a very good, very, very impactful 2020 in, in the receiving game. So I think there's, you know, there's maybe a little bit of questions of you got a quarterback there. How do the skill positions around him kind of fill out with a couple of guys gone? Um, most notably, Watt Fillier, who I think was a security blanket for Indiana. I think IU has the talent there and the pieces, but it's just about, you know, basically those those players maybe finding a good early rhythm and getting involved. And then defensively, I'm not saying they don't have any weaknesses. They are very strong everywhere. I mean, they, you know, they, they've got all Americans and all Big Ten players and uh, in the secondary and in linebacker in in their linebacker core. I think the one area, their defensive line is very solid, um, but it is kind of, you know, very much the sum of its parts. And they added three transfers there, uh, a good-looking all-MAC defensive tackle named Weston Kramer, and then a couple of ends from the SEC, Jaron Handy from Auburn and Ryder Anderson from Ole Miss, who they were very high on both of them. And if there's kind of one area where that defense can – substantially improve in my mind it's if if they can find one or two guys that can become game changers at the same level that guys like Taiwan Mullen and Micah McFadden and Jalen Williams and Devon Matthews are at, at linebacker and at safety and corner if one or two guys can step up on that offensive line and really just kind of become first page of the scouting report players or defensive line excuse me and go from being kind of part of a, a solid unit that maybe isn't always spectacular to becoming players that are kind of, you know, first names to know on the scouting report week to week for opponents. I think that's an area that that's maybe one of the, the biggest areas for growth that this defense can kind of take from last season to this one. So I don't know if it's a weakness so much as if you're looking for maybe ways that Indiana changes its it stripes a little bit and gives opponents something different to think about compared to last season. It's maybe if they can, I mean, obviously if, if some world beater develops anywhere, that's, you know, it goes without saying, but particularly on that defensive line, if, if that group can maybe add a, a real kind of all conference level player or two somewhere, anywhere really, then I think that could, that could make Indiana even better defensively. My last question is more of a fun question that I got from Twitter. What exactly is a Hoosier? Well, so this is this is a, uh, <laughs> a this is a point of great debate, and there's basically no answer for it. Um, it is a person from Indiana. That that is that is what uh, it, it means. What its origin is again is kind of up for debate. Is it was it something that um, was it basically just sort of a slang term or a derogatory term for people from this part of the country? Because obviously at one time, this was a, a pretty rough, unsettled part of the country. I mean, going back 200 years ago, this was kind of the frontier um, and and was, you know, kind of a, a part of America that hadn't really been populated very much yet in the way that it has now in terms of there being cities and communities and things like that. Um, I think the most, at, at very least, the, the most interesting sort of theory I've ever heard is that people used to shout, you know, people would move goods along the Ohio river on old flat bottom boats and they'd shout who's there. And the particular 
dialect of people that lived around what is now Indiana along the Ohio River, it kind of came out like a hoosh air or, you know, <laughs> uh, and so it, that kind of stuck. I don't know if that's true or not, but basically what it, what it means is someone from the state of Indiana, uh, what, where that comes from is, is something that I think is quite possibly lost to time at this point. Yeah. Well, it sounds like it's like an internal state debate. <laughs> it comes up. I mean, it comes up a lot. It, it, it at least once or once every year or two, there, there seems to be for one reason or another, it, it gets into the news and um, we all kind of have to, to trot out the old sort of explainer pieces that say, well, actually we don't really know what it means or what it is, but <laughs> well, I appreciate you coming on the Hawk Off the Press podcast today, Zach. Um, your intel is vast, and um, it's really nice that I think Iowa fans will enjoy learning a little bit more about this opponent and what they can expect on Saturday. So I just wanted to thank you for coming, and we'll see you on Saturday. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. See you, see you in Iowa City. Now you just heard from Zach from the Indianapolis Star, and now I am joined by my coworker, Michael Loss, and we're gonna just talk about yesterday and what we're expecting out of Saturday. So, Mike, how are you doing? I am uh, swimming in it. Yeah, you've got the you've got the indie background. Is that your choice, or who's gonna win on Saturday? Well, I mean, we could be boring and put up Iowa stuff, but let's pay a little respect to the visitor. <laughs> I think some Hawkeye fans are going to be like upset with this podcast when they see this, but um, you know, well, they know what Kinnick looks like. This is true. I, however, am just using the background of my apartment, but Mike, you always have an interesting background. Um, I feel like, <laughs> well, I mean, who wants to see my apartment? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, kind of what you just, you wrote yesterday, I think about accessibility with Iowa media because I remember you you asked in the press conference yesterday about like why we're getting more coaches to talk to us now we get assistant coaches on Wednesdays we heard from George Barnett today from the offensive line um so I just wanted to know did you have that idea going into the press conference and what led you to write about that I I did I mean it's something that has actually occurred to me all year just seeing more and more and more assistant coaches and even the strength coach who was on a podcast with you and the recruiting director who was on a podcast with you or webcast, however you prefer to call it. Mm -hmm. And this, I mean, you may think that this is just business as usual, but this is new stuff for Iowa football. they've, They've gone from having what I would call an iron curtain and a Wizard of Oz type deal and keeping everybody behind the curtain to here we are and we're going to talk to you and uh, hopefully it won't be too painful for anybody but it's about promotion they didn't used to have to promote Leah I mean it basically uh, hang a sign outside the stadium that says game today and you get 70,000 people but it's a different landscape and there's, there are no guarantees of sellouts anymore. And also in this era of this forever changed era of the internet and cell phones and all this information at your fingertips, 
to be interesting to recruits, I think you've got to pound, 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 and be out there in a plethora of ways. It's not just constantly calling recruits and sending, you know, snail mail letters to them now. It's you've got to get their attention. You've got to keep their attention. So I think they're pulling out a lot of stops they never had to do uh, in the past. Yeah, I'm also wondering, like, something that was kind of on my mind is I feel like the pandemic brought out this side of us that was more empathetic and more uh, open to talking to other people. And I'm not sure if that's something that has played a role in sports at all. I mean, we're seeing a lot of professional locker rooms being like even more locked up uh, to people because of the pandemic. But in other ways, I mean, I feel like we're also saying, okay, here are these reporters who are also like human beings. Here are these coaches who are also human beings. Um, Maybe we can work together a little bit more to, I don't know, to like tell better stories. I don't know if you got that impression at all, or if maybe that was what Kirk was trying to get at yesterday. Well, I'm going to be a cynic because (laughs) that's what I am. I mean, you do things in big business to make money, to benefit yourself, to set yourself up for success down the road. With the assistant coaches, I think it starts with Brian Ferentz, and I'm sure Brian Ferentz has been one of the primary promoters of this. Mm-hmm. Let's get the other people out there, including himself. He's very talkative. Uh, yeah, well, you know, it's like <laughs> there may come a time, believe it or not, when Brian Ferentz would like to be considered to be the head coach of the Iowa football team. I'm not saying that's a, a given that it's going to happen, but I think there's a pretty fair chance that he would certainly have his hat in the ring. Uh, you're going to want to be a proven entity. You're going to want it to be somebody who's got the heartstrings of fans. And going and doing a three-hour podcast like he did a few weeks ago, I'm <laughs> sure he's not doing – he loves to talk, but he didn't do it because he loves to talk, Okay. And then secondly, a year ago, they had a bad scandal. Right. Well, you can't erase that in one fell swoop, but you can just keep working, working, working to build better public relations with the world at large. And I think maybe that enters into it, too. Maybe that, but I would think that would be more reason to close off, too. That's that's what I was thinking. That but you was can't because impression. everybody else is wide open. I mean, you mm-hmm. you did a feature on Brett Bielema this summer right. at Illinois. Brett Bielema wants to build a wall around the state of Illinois when it comes to high school recruits. Iowa has worked Illinois hard forever. Now, Iowa wants to get premier players out of Illinois. Well, you can't let Brett Bielema just have his run of the Internet. You got to fight fire with fire. Uh, last Friday, last Friday morning, Brett Bielema posts a message on Twitter wishing good luck to every high school team in the state of Illinois. A couple hours later, maybe even less, Pat Fitzgerald of Northwestern does the exact same thing. <laughs> later that day, um, Iowa's coaching or the Iowa Twitter account does the same, but to Iowa schools. Okay. Well, yeah, you should. Would they have done it? They weren't the first one to do it. Would they have been the first one? We don't know, not necessarily, but they saw and they reacted. I think, I don't think that those were independent things. 
certainly I think boosting your uh, social media presence, your internet presence is going to be so important to attract those top recruits, which I was lost a lot, a lot of, out on this summer, especially to places like Illinois or places like Wisconsin, places like um, even Auburn was a big, <laughs> was a big sell for, I think it was Mike O'Reilly Ducker this summer. So um, mm. yeah, I, it, it was intriguing to hear Kirk try to answer that question when you asked about accessibility, because he was very vague about it. Um, <laughs> well, no surprise there, but yeah. I mean, he makes, he's still, it's still an autocracy, right? but even autocrats, and I'm not comparing college football to real autocrats. Okay. Nip that in the butt. This is just <laughs> sport. It's just sports. You know, it's not Putin. It's not those guys in China and Turkey and Hungary and you name it, maybe even in the U S uh, but, you know, the, the head coach is the all-powerful Grand Puba, but uh, he's got a son and a son-in-law on that staff who I think are unafraid to tell him what they think he should be doing, and sometimes he listens. Right. Yeah. And the people that are, um, he's going to listen to the most are probably people who are family, close family, mm-hmm. um, especially on staff. That's just how things work. Um so I'm curious, we were talking to players yesterday. We were talking to coaches um, or coach Ferentz and Barnett this morning. I don't know if you were in on that press conference this not. morning. Uh, there wasn't a lot said. Uh, they're still not going to tell us who's starting on the offensive line. No shock there. You know, I, there are some things Iowa will keep secret until game day. What were your impressions from some of your, some of the players that you talked to or things that stood out to you when previewing this game on Saturday? What do you plan on writing about? Uh, Well, uh, my thing for Saturday for game day to me is that real college football is back at Kinnick Stadium. Last year was one big asterisk. I mean, it was four home games. It it was real football, but it wasn't a real football experience. It was just only family members inside a stadium that seats 68, 69,000 people. It was flat out weird. You know, the pumped in crowd noise, no marching band, no spirit squad, uh, no big noise. It was studio football, which was appropriate because the reason the Big Ten decided after all to have a season was because of television, of course. Uh, So the whole year to me was sort of a big washout. Um, You know, look, if you won the championship, you're uh, you're not going to say that, but as far as an experience, you know, they, they did it. It happened. I'm not sure it really existed. Starting Saturday, real college football comes back to Kinnick Stadium. 69,000 fans or so. The big noise, the music, the roars, the tailgating, the, the smell of the big-ass turkey legs on Melrose Avenue. You name it. It's all going to be back. And uh, the players are as happy about that as anybody. And I, so I asked a handful of players, you know, how they felt about it. It seemed like a cliched question, but you could tell that they are, they are seriously happy to see those fans, to see those fans in Coralville as the bus is pulling into town from Cedar Rapids that morning where they spent the night before. And to see the people all the way from Coralville to the front step of Kinnick Stadium 
and to see the, the cluster of people outside Kinnick as they get off those buses. Uh, you don't get into this uh, college sports to play in front of nobody. You know, it's not the Big Ten because you play in front of nobody. It's because it's big. That's the first part of Big Ten. Now, hold on. The well, We will say the Pac-12, though, apparently you do sign up to play in front of close to nobody. Did you see those photos of the UCLA game Yeah. against Hawaii? What did you think well, of that? It also, it also was August the 20-whatever in, in Pasadena, Southern California, against Hawaii in hot weather. It's a tough sell. It's a totally different market. It's... It probably ranked about 999th on things to do in Southern California that day. That's true. Yeah, it's this like is the only game in town, Leah. Yeah, <laughs> there's uh, there's nothing else to do in Iowa City. <laughs> um, I'm excited. Do you have any advice for a first time beat writer on game day? Uh, <laughs> I was going to ask you for some. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I was like, I don't know how early I'm going to get there. People have been asking me like, oh, what's your routine? You're going to get that breakfast pizza. You're going to get like coffee from a specific place. I was like, I don't even know if I should even like drive. I feel like I should walk to the stadium because I feel like it's going to be jam packed traffic, even though I live five minutes away. <laughs> well, you know what? Walking might not be a bad idea. Uh, I mean, in seriousness, the, the game day experience Saturday could be uh, potentially could be a mess. Gary Barta talked about this with the reporters yesterday. Uh, there are a combination of things that may not work well. One of them is the, the advent of all paperless tickets, all electronic tickets on your telephones. Uh, you know, the average age of the Iowa fan is... <sighs> <laughs> Make your own joke here. Um, your age? <laughs> But, but even, you know, even schmoes like you, you know, youngsters, young Leah, uh, everybody can have problem with electronic tickets. I mean, when I fly, I like to have a backup uh, oh. in case something's wrong with my phone. It's like, okay, I got the paper ticket in my hip pocket. I literally don't remember the last time I got a paper boarding pass. I might've just got one because I checked a bag and they give you one and I took a picture for Instagram, but yeah, I don't. I love well, I like the electronic. A, I like it as a backup, you know, and, <laughs> and, but, but I don't know how this is going to work. And on top of this, they're going to be short staffed. Barta said so. Severely yesterday. so too. And between people trying to figure out how to use these tickets, the, the employees trying to figure out how to help them find those tickets and get them okayed. Uh, first game there in, you know, what is it? Uh, 22 months. With, with fans. And then there's the parking situation. It's <laughs> six hours before the kickoff, they're going to start letting people in. It used to be, you know, at the crack of dawn, they could come in. Even the night before, they could park. Uh, that means that traffic is going to be gummed up. Uh, it's, and, and beer sales for the first time. There are, so there are more concession stands and it's cashless. So everything, every transaction's credit card. For a lot of us, that's not a problem. None of this is a real problem. But if it's a problem for enough people, it's going to be a problem for everybody. 
I have heard a lot of complaints about the ticket situation. I think that's going to be definitely more of a problem than the, the cash situation. Then again, I'm also one of those people who does not ever carry cash, which is probably not a good idea anyway, but um, to each his own. I was going to get around to answering some of these Twitter questions that I ended up getting um, when I said we were recording this uh, podcast. Um, So one of the first questions we have is what are some of the benefits of playing a conference opponent in week one and does it have its negatives? Uh, Well, both. I think uh, the, the benefit's obvious. You play a conference team and a good one right out of the gates and win. Uh, you've established yourself nationally. You've kind of firmed up your position in the national rankings and you're one and oh, that feels pretty good. And that's gonna, it'll be a win that stands up in November or December or whatever in terms of strength of schedule and bowl game status and so forth. If those things are necessary at that time. Uh, it's a good team they're playing. The players that I interviewed, and I bet you heard the exact same things, seem pretty uh, pretty fired up about playing a good team right out of the gates. I think the yeah. coaches, not so much. Yeah, the coaches were a little bit more high anxiety about it, where the players were like, yeah, I mean, it's kind of nice that we're playing a team that, not that any other team doesn't matter, but they, they really don't, you know, like, this is a really important game and amps up the intensity of your practice and your motivation. If I were an athlete, I'd be much more motivated week one to play Indiana than I would be to play Kent or Colorado state. That being said, those non-conference opponents, having them first in line, that's usually where you're able to like work out the kinks in your likes in for Iowa. That would be the defensive line. That'd be the offensive line. You don't have that opportunity against Indiana. And luckily, both teams have a lot of veterans, a lot of people returning, especially in the secondary and and on offense, quite frankly. But yeah, I think it's uh, I think there's good. There are good things. And then there are bad things about starting with a conference opponent. But I prefer it as a reporter. I think it's much more exciting. There's a lot more at stake. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, Well, I mean, if it were if it were to me, they'd play 10 conference games and two good non-conference games. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Now, and I know that it's like people in the Mid-American Conference or wherever, Louisiana Monroe would say, well, how are we going to survive? And so I get that. But also, it's not going to happen because Iowa will play seven home games a year no matter what, as will all the big boys. But uh, as far as, I mean, look. If they were playing Akron Saturday, it it would be like it's been so many years here, and it would be like, okay, get it over with. Let's get on to real business. And and they've had almost nothing but those openers for 20 years. Last year, they opened at Purdue. It was a a weird deal, a thrown-together eight-game schedule. And they got beat and they lost the following week at home to Northwestern and it kind of wrecked their season. And I know they went six and two and they were one in my mind, they were one of the 10 best teams in the country, but they blew their chance to go to Indianapolis and play for the league championship in those first two games. That experience I would think would serve them well Saturday. Yeah. The next uh, Twitter question we got, is there a, school with a bigger coolness disparity between basketball uniforms and football uniforms in Indiana? 
<laughs> I don't know. I don't, I don't know what that, that means. I don't I know don't what that either. means. I like their uniforms in both. Eh, I don't know. I think football is a little underwhelming uniform wise for Indiana. So their their colors are crimson and cream. What are you gonna do with that? Uh, not a lot. I mean, I don't like crimson anyway. It's it's I associate it with Oklahoma over here. So um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what to make of that question. But the next question is hot take by the Hawkeye Tall Boys podcast. They said Iowa Never rushes for them. they're a fan podcast. Uh, <laughs> I'm they, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> They said Iowa rushes for 250 plus yards on the ground on Saturday. Do you think it's doable? I am not so sure about that. What about you? Uh, I would bet a considerable sum of money. It doesn't happen. I mean, anything's, <laughs> anything, it's possible, but Indiana's got a good defense. I a mean, really they've, got good a, defense. they've got a good veteran defense. Uh they're not going to give up 500 yards. They're not going to give up 250 rushing yards. We also don't know where this offensive line is at. Uh, I mean, I know it's probably going to be fine, right? But it's still pretty – it's young. You're missing Kyler's shot. That's already working against you. Uh, it's game yeah, one. It's game one. I don't think it's – I don't think it's doable. I think that's a little uh, little homer take by the Hawkeye yeah. tall boys. <laughs> yeah, avoid those Homer takes, uh, especially the ones that are borderline insane. <laughs> oh, man. Um, yeah, I got another question that was slightly inaccurate. He said, I've heard rumblings that there may have, that Indiana may have the worst secondary in the Big Ten, which is not true. Um, what's the best plan I mean, to well, You can just that? stop that one right there because that's idiotic. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they've got a player in that secondary who's a preseason All-American. They, uh, yeah. Phil Steele says they've got the seventh best secondary in America. Right. And I mean, Phil Steele, I, I don't go to bed at night praying to him, but I put a little more stock in that than whoever asked that question. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I think my response, I was like, um, don't think so. They led the Big Ten in interceptions, 17. Oh, that was second God. nationally. Uh, returning the first team all Big Ten cornerback in Taiwan Mullen. Uh, led the Big Ten in sacks by a defensive back and also sixth in the league in picks. So, and then you've got second teamers, Jalen Williams, third team, Devon Matthews. You've got two senior linebackers. Not that that's secondary, but you know, it's. I think the one thing that Indiana is worried about more is its defensive line, kind of like Iowa, and it's got three graduate transfers on that defensive line. And so it's going to be how do they work as a unit in real time? In Iowa, it's more about, okay, how do these younger defensive linemen work together as a unit in real time? So which is better, having a bunch of graduate transfers or having a bunch of young guys that were brought through the same program? Yeah. So, but then again, the defensive line for Indiana has also, I mean, they led the big 10 in sacks last year. So they're good. They're good. I mean, it's a good, it's a good defense and it's a good team. They're not number 17 in the preseason by some, you know, a bunch of AP voters just threw darts at a wall here. I mean, <laughs> preseason rankings don't mean a lot. And, and somebody said in something interesting recently, you don't go into a college football complex and see a wall full of portraits of preseason All-Americans. But 
they're coming off a six and two season. They were six and one in the Big Ten, and their only loss was by seven points at Ohio State. They have the same Big Ten record over the last two years as Iowa, 11 and five. They have the guy who was, I think, a national coach of the year, according to some last year. They're good. I'm not saying that they're going to set the world on fire this year, but they're good. This is a good team. They're certainly a team to worry about. Um, they play a Barrett similar. sounded worried, and, and I, he wasn't faking it. <laughs> I mean, he's hey, look, if, if they were playing the Coast Guard Saturday, Ferentz could, <laughs> could say they've got some nice players, they're well coached, etc. but he couldn't sell their good. He had no problem selling this team as good. Yeah. Well, Mike, I appreciate you coming on the podcast and sharing your input. What is your, do you have a pick on who's going to win this Saturday and potentially like a score prediction? I'm picking Iowa because I feel confident that they'll have their act together from uh, pretty much from the <laughs> get go. I think the home field advantage will be a real thing. Yeah. Uh, Indiana hasn't played in front of 68,000 hostile fans in two years. Well, and there's a lot uh, of players Iowa's that haven't ever played in Kinnick before. Too. Yeah. And, and it's a tough place to play. So, mm-hmm. and I think Iowa has got a very good team. Uh, I I think that it's going to be a potentially dynamic team. So great first week matchup. Uh, I think that the Hawkeyes get them. And uh, if they don't, uh, well, Leah, you're just going to have to rip them. <laughs> well, if I rip them, I might get run out of town first, like first game. No, I'll stay in town. I'm just going to, um, people are not going to be happy with me, but that's okay. You know, not everybody can't make everybody happy. Uh, the cynic himself, I'm sure you don't make everybody happy. <laughs> no, that's where you're wrong. <laughs> All righty. Okay. Well, see you in the press box. See you there.